chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 as we going through the Old Testament and here in Acts this morning. But a, a great message for us this morning. We're going to finish the chapter verses 12 through 26. The message this morning is Peter's second sermon. The Apostle Peter's second sermon. His first sermon was on the day of Pentecost. And these are important sermons for us because here we're face to face with the genuine Christian message. And the Christian message, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what this world needs to hear today more than anything else. They don't need to hear all the latest wokeisms and the latest philosophies and the silliness that this world has to offer to make us think it's going to make the world better. Well, they've been trying to make the world better since day one and it's just gotten worse. That's the, that's the wisdom of man. They don't use, they don't allow the wisdom of God to come in into their decision-making processes. In our last study, remember the lame man, last week, the lame man was healed. He had been lame from birth, crippled from birth. And, and for about 42 years, he hadn't walked. And so he's laying in front of the temple gate, beautiful. And here comes Peter and John on the way to prayer. And they see the man. And all he wants is maybe a piece of bread just to get him through the day. And Peter and John, they stop. And they tell the man, you know, we, we don't have any silver or gold. If we had it, we'd give it to you. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And man, he stood up immediately and he was leaping and he was jumping and he was praising God and he goes with Peter and Paul into the temple. And so now he's healed, he's walking and all the people that were watching, they're all stirred up now. They're all excited because a little while ago they saw this man crippled from birth and now He's walking. He's praising God. And so they're wondering, what's going on? What's happening? And so they're all excited because they saw a man that was crippled. Now they're blown away what's happened to him. They're blown away by what they're seeing. And as Peter and John and the healed man were leaving now, they're walking out of the temple. And the healed man, he's holding on to to Peter and to John. All the people ran toward him. Now, when Peter saw this crowd, he said, ah, I have a chance now to share Jesus with them. And he took advantage of that. He saw this crowd and now he wants to tell them. He wants to preach the gospel to them. He wants to let them know what happened to this man. The crowd gathered because they wanted to know what happened to the lame man. They they really wanted more like to know, how did it happen? How was it one minute this man is walking or is lame? He can't, and now he's, he's walking. That's kind of what happens when, when, when you got saved. People say, what in the world happened to them? They don't want to, they don't cuss anymore. They don't want to go drinking anymore. They don't want to go partying anymore. They don't want to hang out with us anymore. What happened to them? How, how did they go from being lame, I guess you could say, you know, like, to, to 
walking with Jesus. This is what that crowd wants to know. And so Peter's going to preach to them. He's going to tell them what they need to know. How did it happen? So Peter speaks to the crowd now. And he tells the crowd about this new phenomenon that has come about. And that new phenomenon is the Christian church. And he explained its message. And this is what's so wonderful about the scriptures. Because as we read this, we have the picture of what took place, of this amazing incident. Then it's explained to us in a sermon and a teaching, and that's what we need. So with that little bit of introduction, let's begin now in chapter 3 with verses 12 and 11. And it, and it says, so when Peter saw it, that is the crowd, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, He had to explain to the crowd, the people weren't drunk. They had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now in this sermon, Peter's second sermon, he had to change their thinking. He had to change their thinking that that him and John, you know, they thought that, that, that they had healed this man in their own power. So Peter didn't waste any time preaching to the crowd. The first thing he said to them is, look, we didn't have anything to do with healing this man. It wasn't us. Peter wanted to make that clear right away, and he wanted to point everyone to Jesus. And that's what we do when we tell people about Christ. We point them to him. We don't want them to depend upon us. We don't want to become their counselor. We don't want to become their their strength. We don't want to become... uh, their support because we can't do anything we want to point them to jesus because he's the one that can take care of everything that i need he has the power he has the strength he has the wisdom to deal with my needs in my in my difficult times that i go through and in this short sermon peter again wanted to make it clear to to, to not look at us but to point everybody to jesus christ and in this short sermon, Peter referred to Jesus several times. Because Peter, Jesus should be the theme, the focus of our speech. He spoke about Jesus several times. And, and, and again, he wanted to divert any attention and all attention away from the layman, away from John, and away from himself, and focus on Jesus. Peter wasn't going to promote himself. He wasn't going to tell the lame, oh, you know, I'm such a holy man. I'm such a righteous man. I'm all this. No, he wasn't. He wasn't going to promote himself. He wanted them to remember one name. One name. The name of all names. The name Jesus. A couple of things happen whenever God starts to work, starts doing works, mighty things, using men and women with the gifts of the Spirit. First, people are tempted to praise the person with the gift. You know, they look to the, oh, and they, they, oh, yeah, you're so wonderful, and you're so great, and you're so spiritual, and you're so this, and you're so that. Uh-uh. You praise the one who did the work, Jesus Christ. 
The second, diff- the second thing that, that happens a lot is the person with the gift, they're tempted to receive the applause. Yes, I am pretty great, aren't I? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite the spiritual man. And they begin to receive the glory and the applause that belongs to God and only God. Again, I used the illustration before. It's like, you know, the, the surgeon, he grabs the scalpel and he begins to do open heart surgery. Now, when the surgery's over, the patient, you know, he he's, he's, comes out of the, the anesthesia and, and, and the doctor tells him, the doctor tells him, you know what, you're going to be okay. The surgery was a success. Now, for the, for the patient to grab the scalpel and go, oh, man, you're an awesome scalpel. What a wonderful instrument you are, is foolishness. Because it was the doctor who used the scalpel to do the work. The scalpel's just a tool. You and I are just tools. In more ways than one, we're just tools. And you know, my daughter used to always call, call me a tool when she was messing around because, Dad, you just don't know what's going on. You're a tool. But anyway, <laughs> you know. And so, or, or, or an instrument. You know, you don't, you don't give glory or praise to the instrument. To the, you give it to the one using it because he knows how to use it. Jesus knows how to use us to get things done. And he, uses, and he still uses us today. So right away, Peter takes out, as he's talking to the crowd now, all right, he's going to, Peter is going to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and nobody else. It wasn't Peter's presumed goodness that was the subject matter. It was the people's terrible guilt. So right away, Peter takes out the sword, the sword of the word of God, the Bible. What he had in his day, he didn't have a Bible. He had all of the word of God in his heart. And he starts to take the word of God like the sword of the, of the spirit. And he takes that sword and he begins to, you know, and figuratively speaking, piercing hearts, bringing cutting conviction to their hearts. He didn't have to talk about the healing of the lame man. Because it, it wasn't about them. Need, they needed to repent. The people needed to repent. He wasn't going to tell them about, oh, how wonderful this healing was and, and the lame man and all that. No, he said they needed to hear about Jesus. Because this wasn't the first miracle that they had seen or heard. Because the whole country had heard and seen these kind of healings for three and a half years while Jesus was on earth. God's servant, Jesus Christ, had been all over the land. And in that three and a half years, what did the people do? The people mostly rejected Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate, the governor, he wanted to let Jesus go. Pontius Pilate even decided to let him go, but the crowd, they they intimidated and pressured Pilate, and he gave in to the pressure, and he crucified Jesus Christ. And in a flash, Peter, in his sermon, had the crowd now going back to Calvary, looking at the crucifixion, remembering and reviewing their crime. Calvary may have been the man's last word, But the empty tomb, the resurrection, was God's last word. Look at verses 14 and 15 now. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name, notice, His name and through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. 
Yes, the faith which comes through Christ has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So, I mean, could there ever have been a more evil crime than the crucifixion? Undeserved, unjustifiable crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Isaiah had seen, had seen Christ surrounded by the singing angels who hid their faces in their wings because they didn't dare look at Christ. They said of him continually, holy, 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 in Isaiah 6.3. Jesus was the Holy One. He is the Holy One. The one who dealt in the, dwelt in the Holy of Holies in heaven and who came to earth to live a holy life. He was the just one, the righteous one, the one who never strayed from the good and right way. Jesus had lived his perfect life in front of all men. Jesus said in John 8, 46, to those around him, which of you convicts me of sin? Who can convict me of sin? Jesus could say, I always do those things that please him. He said, I always do the things that please the Father. Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault at all in him. One of the things on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. Mark says he has done all things well. In Acts 10, 38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about, notice, doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. Peter, who lived with Jesus for more than three and a half years, said this, he committed no sin. He was was the one that the Jews had forced Pilate to crucify. And notice in verse 14 here, in chapter 3, Peter said, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Peter here now is taking him back to the scene of their crime once again. He's taking him back to the trial in front of Pontius Pilate just less than two months earlier. And, he, and, and, and it's, he stirred up a mob scene that some of them were a part of. He says, you guys were part of that mob that crucified Jesus. He's taking them back to remember. Oh, yeah. Remember when, when we were hollering, crucify him, crucify him. They were part of that mob. Pilate said... Which one do you want me to release? Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus who had done no sin and Barabbas was a murderer. He said, do you want me to release the Holy One or Barabbas? And they chose the murderer. Barabbas. Again, could there be any more evil crime? In verse 15 here, Peter called Jesus the Prince of Life. The prince of life. He's the author of life. In other words, life that began from nothing through Jesus Christ. It was his idea. He's he's life's creator. He's life's sustainer. Jesus is the one who created life. He's the one who sustains life. John 1, 1, 3, it says, In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and speaks of His deity. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. 
There wasn't a man, woman, or child in the whole crowd who did not owe him their life. And, and us too. The very breath that they breathe, the very breath that we breathe is in his hand, the Bible says. In Acts 17, 25, it says, He gives to all life, breath, and all things. This one, Peter says, the prince of life, the author of life, had come into this world as a man and you murdered him. Could there have been any more evil crime? The heinousness of their crime had, in other words, Peter had to get this into their head. What you did was evil. What you did, it was, your, your sin was so heinous. He had, to get, he had to get that into their heads. And not that they were worse than we are. But he's speaking to the crowd here. But in, in, in really, he's speaking to all mankind. Any rejection of Jesus Christ in any age, at any time, by anyone is a sign of the same evil spirit. In other words, if Jesus was to walk this earth today, he'd be crucified by man again. In the 21st century, he'd be crucified again because of man's hatred for godliness and holiness. So Peter, after Peter was dealing, you know, Peter was dealing head on with these people's rejection of Christ. Then Peter deals with the resurrection of Christ. In verse 15, he speaks of Christ. He says, of whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. The big question in Jerusalem was what happened to Christ's body after he was crucified? Because remember, it was sealed in a tomb. There's no doubt about that. But the empty tomb had confounded the Sanhedrin, which was the, 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 the Jewish leaders, the, the Jewish religious leaders. The body was gone. Hey, it was sealed in a tomb. What happened to it? They even bribed soldiers with a large sum of money to be quiet. So being afraid of the Sanhedrin, the soldiers being afraid of the, 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 the official religious leaders, the, the, they said the disciples stole the body. That was the story. The disciples stole the body. The disciples said, hey, we didn't steal the body, but we know where it is. Because they saw him ascend to heaven. All the authorities needed to do was arrest those men, the disciples. Put them on public trial and force them to confess as to when and where they had seen that body. Oh, but the religious leaders, hey, they didn't dare do that. They didn't want to do that. Because the last thing the religious leaders wanted was to have the disciples tell the truth about what happened to Jesus. It's obvious that the last thing that the Jewish authorities wanted was to arrest the disciples, put them on trial, and then have them cross-examined. And then to give a formal testimony about the extraordinary events that had shaken all of Jerusalem that day. Can you imagine a trial? You, you, know, you can picture a courtroom and, and, and there's the judge. Here's the disciples. Here's the religious leaders accusing the, the disciples of stealing the body. And they're sitting in court and then the judge asks the disciples, Hey, what happened to the body? And the guards, hey, weren't you guarding the body in the tomb? And wasn't that tomb sealed with the governor's seal? 
And the guards, well, you know, while we slept, the disciples came and stole the body. The judge would say, you slept? Well, yes, your honor. Is that what you get paid to do? Guards say, no, your honor. And then the judge would say, do you dare admit that you were sleeping? And anybody that's been in the military, you know what happens if you're caught sleeping on guard duty. It's not a good thing. And they just, you dare admit you were sleeping? You know what the penalty for sleeping on, on guard is? Death, your honor. Does the governor know you were sleeping? I think so. It's not, it, it would not go good. <laughs> it would not go good for the Jewish leaders. But the truth will win out. Now, those men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they were giving their witness to the world. The credibility of their witness would be upheld in any court in the civilized world today if they were put on a trial. And if they were cross-examined by the rules of evidence, they would hold good in our courts today. Verse 16 we we'll read verse 16 again. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, that is Christ, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So they crucified Christ. God raised him. And now in his name, there's power in his name. In Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, now salvation is offered to men. Salvation by faith. And in those early days, the message of the church had to be validated with signs and wonders, with miracles. The man's faith in the same saving name of Jesus Christ was authenticated, validated by his physical healing. The purpose of the miracles that happened from time to time in the early church, they were to demonstrate that all Jesus began to do and teach As recorded in the gospel, he was still doing, he was still teaching in the church because the Jews required a sign. The things that Jesus had done and taught when he was here on earth in his physical body, he was still doing and teaching after he went back to heaven through his spiritual body, which is the church. His servants, you and me. We are an extension of Jesus Christ. What Jesus began to do and to teach in those three years and a half years he was on, he's gone up to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now we carry on his work through his strength, through his power, through his leading. We are his spiritual body. By the time Paul got to Corinth, his biggest concern was, to sat- was not to satisfy the Jews who were looking for a sign. Or, or to satisfy Greek intellectualism. Paul's concern was to preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and then and to the Greeks, foolishness. 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, Verses 17 and 18. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter accused the people and their leaders of not knowing the scriptures. 
Because all they had was the kind of rabbinic teaching that was promoted by Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Gamaliel, which, was a, which made a, a great show of scholarship. I mean, they, they, they knew a lot and they sounded scholarly, but, but their truth was so far from God. See, that's what religion does. Religion sounds good. It sounds scholarly. It sounds like it's right on. But many times, religion is so far from the truth of God. That's why it's so important to know the scriptures. So you'll know the truth of God. Because many times people just sit up front and preach and talk. And you just sit, people sit there and go, mm, oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Have no idea whether it's truth or false. Because they don't know what the word of God says. Jesus accused the rabbis. Think of it, the rabbis. The, the, the most religious men of that day, Jesus accused them of, blind lead, of the blind leading the blind in Matthew 15, 14. Can you imagine what people around them must have thought who looked so highly to the priests and to the, blind, to, to, the, to the religious leaders that Jesus said to them, you're blind leaders leading the blind. The Jews were ignorant of the true meaning of the word of God. When Jesus talked to that thoughtful ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, about the need to be born again, Nicodemus, who had grown old in his devotion to Judaism, he asked the question twice, how do you, how do you become born again? Again, a religious leader, devoted to Judaism, the religion, a leader. And he asked Jesus, well, how do you become born again? And Jesus' word was a gentle rebuke. He said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? There was some excuse for the ignorance of the people like Pilate and the Gentiles, who Paul said in Ephesians 2.12 were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel and you didn't know the covenant promises that God made to them. So they had some excuse because they weren't God's chosen. But there was no excuse for the Jews. They were the chosen people. They were the covenant people of God. They were looking for a Messiah, but they wanted a gladiator hero type of Messiah. They wanted a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah who would go around swinging his sword and and cutting down the, the power of the Roman Empire and making Jerusalem the capital of the New World Empire. They weren't interested. The Jews weren't interested in a, in a meek and mild Messiah. They were looking for a ruler, but God sent a redeemer. They wanted a sovereign, but God sent them a savior. You see, God sends us what we need, not what we want. You know, if, if this world needed a, 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 you know, more scientists, God would have sent a scientist. If this world needed more philosophers, He'd have sent a philosopher. If this world needed more politicians, he would have sent a politician. If the world needed more uh, doctors, he would have sent a doctor. But God sent what the world needed, a Messiah. A Messiah. A Redeemer, a Savior. Because the world needs being saved. The Scriptures prophesied of both. A powerful ruler and a meek and mild ruler. But they, but they blindly overlooked the references to the sufferers, to the sufferer, the, the sufferer like Christ. You know, there's the prophecies of, of Christ's suffering in Psalm 22, Psalm 69, and Isaiah 53. Those are prophetical psalms about Jesus Christ. 
But they just, they ignored that. Now that's not, not what they wanted. It was the ignorance and unbelief of the Jews that had helped to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies. Which God had foreseen and God had prophesied in Isaiah 53, 1. You see, it was the inability of the Jews to distinguish between the two comings of Christ. See, he came the first time, meek and mild. He came, again, as a savior. When he comes the second time, he's coming as judge and ruler of the world. So the first coming, he came as the meek and mild. And the second, he's coming as the judge and ruler of the world. And he's coming in power and great glory. So again, it was the inability of the Jews to distinguish between the two comings of Christ. That's what caused their confusion about the prophetic scriptures and the teaching about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So now Peter's going to speak about the return of Christ. Look at verses 19 through 21. Now he says to the crowd, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So the purpose of Peter's message to the crowd was to get the people in the crowd to repent, to change their attitude about their sin and about Jesus Christ. All the instructing and all the accusing was for the purpose of leading the souls of these people to receive Christ as Savior and Messiah instead of rejecting Him like they'd already done. The word repent means to change your attitude. It means to turn around. Repentance involves, first of all, sorrow over your sin. Not because you got caught, but because sin has dishonored God and it's hurt others. Secondly, repentance involves separation from sin. It means repentance is walking away from sin, not just talking about walking away from sin. The life follows the talk. It involves forsaking of sin. I won't go back to my old sin. And third, repentance involves a savior from sin. In other words, a turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. This is biblical repentance. It's not just what you depart from, but it's who you attach yourself to as well. People today are more concerned about the consequences of sin than they are the fact that sin dishonors God, grieves God, and hurts other people. You know, it's like people I've talked to over the years who, you know, they, they, they've, they've been living in sin. They've gotten caught in some sin or they've done something that has brought consequences upon them. You know, somebody's committed a crime and now they're going to go on trial. And, and, they're literally, and they're literally guilty of that crime. And then they want... They, 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 well, oh, that, you know, it's going to ruin my life. And, you know, you know, pray that they drop all the charges, though they're guilty of them. Because that's really going to be, you know, or, or whatever has been done. They're, they're more concerned about the consequences of the sin than, hey, you know what? I dishonor God. And I grieved God. And I've hurt other people. But because it's going to, you know, cramp their style now, you know, they want, 
it, it, they want to just like kind of erase because like it didn't happen. Paul said about godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, For godly sorrow, notice, godly sorrow, this is the emphasis, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In speaking to the Corinthians, the Corinthians' repentance wasn't just a passing regret, it was a true godly sorrow for their sin. This is how it reads in the New Living Translation. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. A lot of times, again, we, the kind of sorrow that we give is, is, well, oh man, I got busted, I got caught, and you know, I, I regret, you know, it's not truly a repentant heart. It's not, I'm not really, it's not a godly sorrow that says, man, I messed up. I'm sorry, God, and I hurt others, and, and I messed up with you, and I, you know, I, I really, truly repent. No, a lot of the sorrow of the world is, I got caught. Now I got to, you know, pretend like I'm remorseful and sorrow, and, and, and then they go back to the, to the old life. They go back to the old sin. We see the difference of godly sorrow, and we see the difference in, in, in that, that worldly sorrow in Judas and Peter. Judas repented himself. That is, Judas was full of regret for what he did when he betrayed Jesus. And he was full of regret, and he ended up going and committing suicide. Now, Peter, on the other hand, he wept for denying Christ. He wept and he repented. And he was restored with Jesus Christ. Do we as Christians need to repent? Yeah, we do. The initial repentance for our salvation that we can be saved. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul agreed with what Jesus said in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Paul said, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Notice, it was a lifestyle. They practiced it. Four out of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 were commanded to repent. Those were churches. Those were people serving God. Jesus said, you guys need to repent. To repent simply means to change one's mind. And, and disobedient Christians need to repent. And you know, as Christians, we do mess up sometimes. We do fall into sin. But when we do, we need to repent and make things right with God. And, and so, again, it's important. Because sin cuts off the communication between you and God. And when I sin, I lose my, I, I, I fall out of fellowship with God because God is holy and, and sin can't stand before a holy God. Paul said here in verse 19, notice. I'm sorry, I'm, uh, Peter said in verse 19 here, he said, repent that your sins may be blotted out. There's no greater need in anybody's life than to have their sins blotted out because you will never get to heaven if your sins are not blotted, blotted out by God. Peter said, if they repented, it said Peter is talking to the crowd again. Keep in your mind that he's talking to this crowd that's around them as a result of that healing and layman. He's telling this crowd, look, if you repent and you turn to Jesus Christ, he says here, notice, the times of refreshing would come. 
Those times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord in order that he may send Jesus Christ. There was a promise for the individual that their sins would be forgiven and a promise for the nation that times of spiritual refreshing would come. Now, that spiritual refreshing, what would that be? It could be the joy and the peace of the Lord through the great and precious promises of the gospel when sinners repent. And those, that refreshing time is accompanied with God's gracious presence. Or it could be the seasons, uh, seasons of rest and deliverance from the cruelty and violence of persecution, which was the case for the Christians here at the time of Jerusalem's destruction. They weren't saved from just that, uh, that they weren't saved from just that ruin, but they were delivered from the wrath of their cruelest enemies. So Peter was actually calling for a national repentance here. Because the nation, through its leaders, had denied the Messiah and they condemned him to die. So what Peter is saying here is that if the nation repented and believed the Messiah, Jesus, that he would return and he would set up the promised kingdom. But the nation of Israel didn't repent. And God certainly knew this was going to happen. So the message eventually moved from the Jews because the Jews rejected the word of God. It was taken to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. Verses 22 through 24. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. So what Moses is saying from your prophets, there's going to be one raised up like me. Speaking of Jesus Christ. So he says, whatever he says to you and all the things that he tells you, listen to him. Verse 23. And it shall be that every soul, notice, who will not hear that prophet, speaking of Jesus Christ, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Look at verse 24. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as as have spoken have also foretold these days. Peter's quote here is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and 19. It was a messianic prophecy, that is a prophecy about Christ. In urging the people to repent, Peter tells them about the judgment that they will experience if they don't repent. Repentance is not just a good idea. It's not just a good suggestion. It is not an option. It is necessary. Redemption is necessary. If a person wants to escape God's judgment, repentance is necessary. The details in the warning are given here in verse 22. Notice Peter said, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, speaking of Christ, from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. The warning is that men need to listen and obey Jesus Christ. They need to listen to and obey Jesus Christ. Verse 22 and verse 24. Again, Moses and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow. This warning Peter's giving here about judgment, it was given by many prophets way before. Not just a few. So that makes this warning much more important. Verse 23, notice what Peter said. It shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet, Jesus Christ, it says, shall be totally destroyed from among the people. The word destroyed here, the word destroyed here doesn't mean extinction. It doesn't mean when you die, you quit existing. 
It means a change of, of, of your situation. In other words, you go from earth to hell is what it means. If you die without Jesus Christ, if you're not born again, if you do not repent of your sins, you will die here, you will go from earth to hell. The thing that makes hell so terrible is that in hell you'll never stop existing. You never die. It's eternal torment. The suffering and the agony will never end. Christ is the key to man's eternal destiny. You reject Christ, you'll have nobody to blame but yourself if you end up in hell. If you receive him, you'll experience blessing. Reject him, you'll know hell for all eternity. Verse 25. Peter goes on to say, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in all your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Peter reminds the Jewish people here. He reminds this crowd about their identity. Now that should encourage them to repent. He says to the Jewish crowd here, he says, Hey, you guys, think about who you are. You are sons of the prophets. You are sons of the covenant which God made with our fathers. You're a special group of people. And in verse 26, Peter will use this identity to show that privilege brings responsibility. That is, if they are, if they are which they are, since they are children of the covenant, that is true Israelites, they ought to receive Jesus Christ. And he said in verse 25, he said, Abraham, in in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was the great promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which included the promises of Jesus Christ and the gospel, according to Galatians 3, 8. Verse 26, last verse. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him... To bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Here's the the amazing thing of all of this. The amazing thing that God did. God has kept his hand from bringing judgment. At the cross, when Jesus was being crucified, he said, 12 angels, 12 legions of angels were ready and waiting to pour out God's wrath on man for the torture and the crucifixion of the Son of God. He could have stopped the whole thing and wiped out all of mankind for what they were doing to Jesus. But God stopped the judgment. God was giving man another chance Mercy, grace. Mercy was given instead of judgment. They could still be saved from all of their sins. God was and he still is willing to bless rather than curse. But they had to turn to Christ like all men have to turn to Christ. The one they had rejected. The one who God raised up. So in closing. Why should you repent? Because if you don't repent. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that's waiting for you is everlasting destruction. Hell. Not something that's preached a lot about today. 
But Jesus preached a lot about hell. Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. Nobody was meant to go there. He said that, that hell was not meant for man, but for Satan and his demons. He made a way so that mankind wouldn't go to hell. But if you reject that way, that's your only alternative. Repent and believe the gospel and your sins will be forgiven. And you will forever be with Jesus Christ in everlasting glory in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word. Your encouraging word, God. And we thank you that, as Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, when we wanted nothing to do with you, God. You still went to the cross. You still sent your son to the cross for us. And you still showed your love for us. And your grace and your patience, Lord. We've been seeing your grace for over 2,000 years. You haven't wiped us out yet. All it is mankind that has rejected you. We will be saved. But you haven't judged the world. We're so thankful, God, because many of us wouldn't have come to know you. And there's still many that need to come to know you. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit has brought conviction to hearts this morning about the need to repent to forsake your sin the worship team is going to lead us in a in a song of worship right now it's really a, a, a meditation time it's to think about the message it's to think about the love of God and the the answer to sin that he gave through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whose blood washes us from all sin if we are faithful to confess our sin. And during the time of this song, we just want you to meditate and to think. If you're, those who are inside, if you're outside the church there or if you're watching, if, any, if at any time, the Spirit says, hey, you need to receive Christ. Raise up your hand. Raise up your hand and I'll acknowledge it. You can put it back down again. So as we worship, let the Holy Spirit speak to you.